Um, good morning. Hey. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> um, let's make a start. Um, my name is Stephanie, I'm part of the team here and I'm continuing our series in Ruth. Uh, Stephen and Thomas and I were up this weekend with my 90-year-old mother-in-law and the irony wasn't lost on me that two of the main characters we're talking about today are a, a daughter-in-law and a mother-in-law. And um, after 30 plus years, we have a deep affection and love for one another, but it's taken work. And I think um, work on both our parts uh, and anyone who thinks that any female relationship is straightforward has obviously never had a relationship with a woman, in my view. Uh, but what changed for us was when I started to understand her story. And what changed between my lovely mother-in-law <laughs> was when I started to realize what life was like for her as a woman. And I want to come back to that later. But we had a kind of a funny conversation yesterday afternoon. And uh, I said to her, I'm going to go and do a bit of prep, Granny, because uh, I'm doing stuff at church tomorrow. Oh, this is how the conversation went. Oh, are you doing a reading? And I said, yeah, yeah, I'm doing the reading. And who else is on? And I said, well, um, actually, I'm doing a wee bit more than that. I'm sort of talking about it. You're preaching. And I said, yeah. Yes, I am. And I got more confident as the conversation went on. And she thought for a moment and she said, will you make sure you keep your notes? Because when they come and question what you've said, you'll be able to refer to them. And at first I laughed at her and thought, oh, granny. And then I realized her story and her culture and her era. And I thought, you grew up in a world where women did not have a voice in public and certainly not in the church. And so you are suspicious and worried for me as much as anything else. And so I realized that initially I thought, Granny. And then I thought, bless you. That's your story. That's your world. And I have to be respectful of that and understand it in order to understand her. So that is just a little the context of my weekend. Let's pray before we begin. Father, we thank you for this ancient text. We thank you for this story that speaks down through the centuries and across all generations. And there is so much richness and gold in it, and we thank you for it. And now in these moments, I ask that the words that I bring are from you, and that what is not from you falls away and is not even heard. And that what we meditate on in our hearts, that they grow a little this morning that our hearts become more tender, that our hearts mimic more of yours, and that in doing that, we change the world that we now live in, in your beautiful, precious, and life-giving name. Amen. Amen. So we are continuing our series, Borders and Belongings, in the book of Ruth. The book is found just after Judges and before Samuel, and it's kind of the bridge between the Judges ruling and the beginning of the reign of David. This book references three quite significant Mosaic laws, and D.A. spoke last week about the law from the Torah. He spoke about the one on gleaning, and that was very relevant in the chapter two, the generous provision of the wealthy for the poor. And in this, the next chapter of the story, the laws regarding the bloodline, 
the Leveret Law and the Rescue of Widows and the law known as Kinsman Redeemer are the laws found in this story and that are so relevant. And there is utter gold to be found in an understanding of this story. And I hope that we can dig into it this morning together as a community. The backdrop to the story, as DA said last week, is the Torah, the laws of the Jewish faith. And against this backdrop is the mystery of how God enters and redeems the human story. Ruth, how the ordinary is transformed into the story of God. And across every book of the Bible, the aim of each story is that we learn not just about the characters, but that we learn about the character of God that the whole story of God is designed to draw us into a greater knowledge of him. It is not just about these people. It is the bigger story. In this book, the narrator doesn't actually mention Yahweh and certainly doesn't quote Yahweh. And that is different to the earlier books before Ruth. But the beauty of this story is that these are ordinary men and women living out a life of faith and radical trust in a good God. And through them, we see the character of God and see his sovereign goodness in action. The themes of this story, I've got them behind me. These are ordinary women. They experience trauma, loss, childlessness, hunger, and desperation, all within the culture of patriarchy. And this story points us to the Redeemer, the one who weaves all of our stories into his bigger story. And against the patriarchal backdrop of this story, the message of Jesus found in the gospel comes in sharp contrast. Jesus spoke and he was quoted in John 18, 36, where he said, my kingdom is not of this world. And the kingdom of Jesus, the gospel that we are invited into, has nothing to do with patriarchy. It is countercultural at the very basis and the story of God invites us into it. Yahweh raises up two utterly destitute women, and Boaz, the wealthy, privileged man, he uses his power, his privilege, and his position to subvert the cultural message of patriarchy. He empowers both Ruth in marriage to him, which we'll we'll find out about next week, and he raises up and rescues and restores Naomi and brings her back into the community. Utterly life-giving to both of them. And I believe that this is the gospel message of what manhood is about. I believe we've bought into an idea that if women rise, men have to go down, or if men are in charge, then women can't be. That is not the gospel story. That is not the call on our lives. We are to live, to bring out the best of each other, to honor the other, And we do that in gender, particularly, and across. All men and women are to collaborate for the good of the other. It's a truly countercultural message of hope for this century. And this is God at the work in the lives of socially insignificant people. Story of ordinary lives lived out in faith. We may consider, and, and you may consider, that we no longer live in a patriarchal society. And what relevance can this story possibly have? And yet, I would argue we do in maybe slightly less obvious ways in this culture. But certainly if we consider the global, the world as a global village, if we consider that babies are left abandoned purely because of their gender, 
If we consider that widows are put in a funeral pyre of their dead husband because they have nothing more to live for, if we consider that every woman across the world lives in fear of gender violence, if we consider of women being sex trafficked to this nation every day, we cannot ever consider that we do not live in a patriarchal world. And if you think of the UK, one in four women will face domestic abuse in the course of their lifetime. And in 2018, 179 women across the UK died at the hands of their partners. Those are truly shocking figures. So when we look at patriarchy and the story of God, and we look at what we live today, actually we have not moved on very far. And there are lots of people who would suggest that patriarchy is the biggest moral challenge across the world today. And so, that is the story that we're living in now, and I believe the story of Ruth offers us some beautiful hope and a redemptive story of a God who has plans for so much more. So let's, I forgot my lovely quote about Naomi. I was thinking about Naomi and how she changed her name to Mara because her life was over. She'd lost her husband, she'd lost her two sons. Naomi, her name means pleasant, but yet she changed it to bitter. And I found this quote, and I, I thought it was very helpful for anyone who has suffered loss or pain. Nicholas Wolsterstoff, he lost his son. He was a, a Yale professor. And he said, the world has a hole in it now. I shall look at the world through tears. Perhaps I shall see things that the dry-eyed eye could not see. I think for anyone in this room who has walked pain and grief and loss, and who of us haven't, we do see the world differently. The lens of our lives, it does change. And perhaps, as he beautifully put, we will see things that the dry-eyed us could never have seen. I would suggest that Naomi, that is her story and that is where she lived out of that story of that pain and that loss because that was never going to go. The loss of a husband and sons was horrific. But perhaps she saw the world in a very different way. At the end of last week, at the end of chapter two, Ruth is in charge. She's sorting out the gleaning. She's got them sorted. But now the harvest is over. And maybe Naomi had moved a little bit further through her grief and her trauma. Or maybe she just realized the desperate situation that they were now in. And so suddenly they go from being Ruth being in charge to Naomi steps up. And that is where the story begins. Maybe she's just responding to the destitution that she now knows is for both of them. And she decides, I'm gonna have to step up and take charge of our situation and our economic circumstances. We can find it hard to imagine how it must have felt for her. She wrestled with God like Job did. But the very interesting thing is that Job was able, because of his gender, he was able to start again and build another family. That was not Naomi's option. As a widow, she had nothing. And so she was utterly dependent on the kindness and the goodness of God. And God did not directly answer her in words, but he sent his answer. And for those of you who are waiting for an answer this morning, God may not directly answer you, but he will send the answer. He will. It may come in a surprising way to you, but he always will. 
And I love that idea that when we, we accept our brokenness and our devastation and we see the world in a different way, perhaps that's the point when hope can actually break in. Perhaps the point, that is the point where we can suddenly raise our eyes and look at God through tears, but also look for hope in this beautiful season of Advent. I'm now going to read us through chapter 3. It's in your Bibles in front of you, hopefully, or you can go on your phone or do as you do. Chapter 3 from the English Standard. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young woman you were? See, he was winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. And when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And Ruth replied, all that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you're wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, you must not go back empty handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. I remember as a, a kid hearing this story and as a young person, and um, I suppose when I heard it, I kind of heard the story of the older man and the younger girl, and he rescued her. And it was a kind of a Disney feel. You know, it was sort of, she got good in the end. And I don't think this has anything to do with Disney or those ideas. This is redemptive love at its best. This is putting the other first. 
This is responding to the need in front of you and showing compassion and kindness and mercy. And you can only do that when you have experienced the compassion, the kindness and the mercy of the Father for yourself. And so there's a few things I want just, I think the story is almost enough. I want to offer some reflections on the story. The gold is in the text itself and is dig and dig digging in deeper to it. There's so much more to it. The story is part of the great tapestry of God. Underneath the tapestry is mess and knots, disappointment, regret, fear, vulnerability. And in time, the beautiful, hope-filled picture of redemption is formed. If we look at, um, at the first verse, mana, it'll come up behind me, hopefully, manawek. It is, the, it is the same verse that is used earlier in the book, and it is talking about rest and security. It's used in chapter one, verse nine. The Lord will grant each of you to find rest in the home of another husband. It is what God has promised us that our homes will be. I love this verse in Isaiah. My people will live in peaceful dwelling places, that should say, as opposed to laces, apologies, in undisturbed places of rest. And if I go back to what I said earlier, there's a long way to go before the promise of God is, is transformed in this world. Not many people live in undisturbed places of rest. So Naomi gets herself, she, set, she tells her to get out of her clothes, to get out of the field clothes, get out of the clothes of a widow and head down and see Boaz who's on the threshing floor. Now, Ruth will have been wearing the clothes that signify that she is in mourning. And basically, it's like your, your mom saying to you, you're getting ready for a night out. Look like you're going on a night out. Look like you're available. Let's be honest. Come on. Look like you're putting some effort in. Send out the message. The morning is over. I am back. Can I say in the game? Maybe not. But... <laughs> You know, that's the message. Her very sensible mother-in-law's telling her, come on, girl, put out the message. And Naomi is not putting her daughter-in-law at risk because there was huge risk with going to the threshing floor. It was renowned for being a place of debauchery. Everybody was drunk. They were delighted that the harvest was over and all sorts could happen. But Naomi's not putting her daughter-in-law at risk. Naomi knows Boaz. She's watched him the whole way through the harvest. She knows that he is safe. She knows that he is a godly good man. So there's nothing untoward in this or, or not thinking the best for her daughter-in-law. And you can only take risks when you know the relationship. You can only take risks when you know the quality of the relationship. And Naomi watched this man and knew that he was good and that he would not harm Ruth. And she knew who she believed in. She knew that the God was after all of their best. And so she trusted her daughter-in-law to go. Naomi knew the significance of lying at his feet. It was a signal in that culture that she wanted to be his wife. And so I want to talk briefly about the threshing floor. Ruth takes a physical and a reputational risk by visiting Boaz there. She uncovered his feet and she lay down, an act of total and utter submission. She is trusting in his kindness and his goodness. And Boaz was slow to act, 
This is the speed that is familiar to the privileged. When you live in privilege, you don't need to rush anything. You take your time. But when you are desperate and destitute, you don't have time. And so Ruth has to take charge and tell him what to do. And when I think about our culture today, and I think about the risks that people take to cross borders and to get to our country. Think of the Mediterranean Sea, a watery grave to thousands, untold thousands of people who were trying to seek a better life. The risks that they took, how desperate, how desperate must you be to step into the back of a refrigerated lorry in the hope of a new life? So this risk and this vulnerability, this goes right across the, the centuries and people are facing this every day. And if the recent deaths of those 39 precious people, and those are the ones we know about, if that doesn't really disturb us and keep us up at night and distress us, we're missing living as the followers of Jesus whose heart is to bring all to him. And so this story resonates very much in our culture today about risk, about desperation, and about hunger and what it will drive us to do. Those deaths should disturb us. They should move us to acts of radical kindness and justice. We should be fighting for justice for those people. And we should be fighting towards a world without borders. The question that was posed about this chapter is who is our family? Well, in the laws of the Torah as given at Sinai in the fourth commandment, there's your answer. Who gets to rest on a Sunday? Who gets to live in the blessing? Your man, your wife, your maidservant, your manservant, and the stranger within your gates. The stranger within your gates. So whoever is the stranger within our gates, they are our family, according to the story of God. And that fourth commandment answers the question, who, if I ask who is my family, it is all of those people and the stranger that is in within my gate. It's very simple. The other thing I want to pull out, ah, I didn't tell you about me. You got, so, Boaz then recognizes, he says to Ruth, who are you? She explains. If we go back to chapter two, verse 12, Boaz sees her in the field and prays for her. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And here in this chapter, Boaz becomes the answer to his own prayer. Because when she lies down and asks him to spread the cloak over her, he then is saying to her through the act of marriage, I will now protect you. I will now be your provider, your protector, and the one who will ensure you are safe, and I will restore you. And I started to think about that idea Ezekiel, God uses the same analogy to Israel. I spread my wings over you and you are mine. Boaz becomes the literal and figurative answer to his own prayers for, for Ruth. He becomes the sheltering wings of Yahweh for her. And as I woke, I woke during the night and I was thinking about that, about how we become the answer to our own prayers, which is exactly what Boaz did. 
how do I actually answer the prayers that I, I pray? And I love this. I love this quote. Prayer is where the dormant potential is awakened, prejudices are softened, and genuine change begins. And I started, as I, I woke up during the night and I felt like the Lord was reminding me that we're in a season of waiting. And I thought that if I walked around this room with the microphone, I'm not gonna do it. But if I asked you all, I imagine every last one of you is waiting for something. You might be waiting for an answer. You might be waiting for healing, for restoration, for hope for change, I don't know what you're waiting for, but I imagine in these days that each of us is waiting for something. And I thought about how do I respond and become to the other, the one that is across the border from me, how do I respond to them? And I think this is the key, this is the key, prayer, spending time in the presence of God and with the Father, because that is where my heart will become in line with his heart, and I will see the other no longer as the other. And I felt as I woke during the night that I was to remind you all that each of you in this room, as well as waiting, you all have someone that you think of as the other. It might be because of their creed, their color, their ethnicity, their gender, their sexuality their class, I don't know what your other is, but you will all have another. And I would like to invite you, as I invite myself, to spend time on my knees in front of the Father. And I visualize my other. I visualize my other. And I bring them to him. And I say, start to expand my heart. Start to tenderize my heart. Start to help me to see the other the way you do. That is where true change happens. Because if I only do good things, not from a heart that has been massaged and expanded and tenderized by the Father, I do it out of my ego. So I might do good things, but I do it out of my own need. We need to let go of our egos and seek transformation by the Father. And when we do that, the other will no longer seem like the other. We will not have to challenge ourselves to be welcoming. It will just happen because there won't be another. If you think of all the teaching in the New Testament about who is family, everyone is included. Everyone is an icon. Everyone has the face of Jesus in their face. You need to find them. And I would also say to you that if you have a group of people or a, an issue, whatever it is, that is your other, as well as bringing them to the Father, dig into relationship with someone who represents that. Someone who is your other. Because when you start to hear their stories and you start to understand them, they don't feel so alien anymore. I think of me and my mother-in-law. When I, I, her and I used to feel like two aliens trying to negotiate our lives together. And then I understood her. And I understood her story. And suddenly I was completely different and much more respectful of her. And I love her. And I invite you, Redeemer, for those of you who are waiting, and for those of you who see someone as the other, 
Let's start digging into these days of Advent and waiting and wait and seek the Lord and ask him to show us the way forward. The best advice I ever got on teaching and prayer is summed up in four words. Talk less and listen more. <laughs> I used to go to God with a list of things. Now I like to just sit and listen. That is the most profound and helpful teaching I ever had on the power of prayer. And I would invite us all into it. Take 40 days, take Advent, take 21 days. Follow the, the patterns that are in the beautiful book of the word of God and, and go and dig into them. The story ends with uh, Ruth walking back with measures of barley. I read one commentator that said that the epaphath, can't I get the word right? Um, actually, she couldn't have carried that amount of barley, so it maybe have, has been an error. But can you imagine her coming back with her apron laden with barley? Naomi's heart must have sung because that visual of her pregnant looking, weighted down with hope, with redemption, with promise, it must have made Naomi's heart sing. It must have reminded Naomi that the risks were right, that her God was faithful, and that he was going to redeem them all. And so that is how the story ends. This visual will have assured Ruth and Naomi that the answer is coming, and it is going to be good. I won't go on to where the story ends. That is DA's privilege next week. These women held on to hope in the waiting, and Annie Lamont, a writer I enjoy so much, she describes waiting so well. Hope begins in the dark. The stubborn hope that if you just show up and try and do the right thing, the dawn will come. You wait and watch and work and you don't give up. For those of you this morning who are waiting, may hope begin in the dark for you that you find yourself in. May you continue to wait and watch and do the work and the answer will come. Don't give up. And so as we end this morning, I just want to kind of conclude my thoughts on this beautiful story. This book invites us to reflect on ordinary lives of a God-saturated man, a God-dependent young woman and a God-exalting older woman. These women faced major personal and cultural challenges. And whilst God did not directly answer their why, he did send an answer. As these women sat in their circumstances and considered their realities, I'm quite sure they would not have been able to do a hashtag blessed post. But they were blessed because they trusted in a good God and he saw them through. This story invites us into a new and a deeper understanding of what community and family actually is when we live out of the story of God. It is based on character and relationship, not blood or ethnicity. And by the end of this story, a foreign destitute woman is included not only in the embrace of the community, but she becomes the ancestor to the community's greatest king. It's not lost on me that the four women in the lineage of Jesus, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba, prostitutes, foreigners, victims of violence, sexual sin all over the place. These are the women that Jesus and God chose 
to herald in his kingdom. There's a message in that. Nothing cannot be redeemed. The lineage of, the, of Jesus was not the great and the good. It was the broken, the messed up, the vulnerable, and those that had really got it wrong. That is incredible news for us. Because whatever your story is, whatever your circumstances are, you are redeemed through believing in the one, the beautiful one. And that is our hope this morning. And this story does so much more. It invites us to reflect on Jesus, the Imago Dei, and follow the new kingdom that he heralded in, completely counter-cultural at its core, both then and now. Both then and now. The call is to follow him and to search for Jesus in every face that you meet, because he's there. He is there. Everyone is born an icon of the Father. And so in these days, we are invited to search for the face of Jesus and to respond to that face in our other. As we come to the table, now I'll invite the band to come. We come every week to remind ourselves that this is where our story begins. This is where our story is redeemed. And this is where we find faith and hope and mercy and grace. And if we have found it, if we're sinners that have found bread, we want to share that. So as you come, please come know that you're loved, you are accepted, and that he is weaving whatever your story is into a much bigger story. So let's sing and let, let's take bread and wine.